The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Foster, senior writer at Barron's. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm delighted to have Robert Hagstrom, Chief Investment Officer and Senior Portfolio Manager at Equity Compass as my guest today. Welcome, Robert. Lauren, it's great to be with you. Well, it's great to have you. So we're just, I guess, shy of two weeks since the event that is popularly known as sort of Woodstock for Capitalists, you know, Berkshire Hathaway's <laughs> annual shareholder meeting in Omaha, Nebraska. And it's a, 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 a rite of passage for devotees of Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. Now, you've been attending in person and virtually since 1995. So for those yeah. of us who've never been, just set the scene for us. What's it like? Well, you know, it is, it's, it's terribly exciting. It is like going to a rock concert. You know, the, the buzz uh, during the Saturday morning as people gather in the arena and throughout the convention center. Remember, there's maybe, you know, 20 some odd people that are jammed in the, con- in, in the arena. But then there's three or four ballrooms that will hold another 20,000 people. So there's a lot of buzz, a lot of excitement. Uh, there's a short movie beforehand, and then the lights come down, and, uh, you know, Warren and Charlie just appear on the stage. And the place goes crazy. And, uh, you know, it's just amazing. You know, Warren at 91, going to be 92. Charlie at 98. They sit up there for almost five hours, Lauren, and mm-hmm. ask questions throughout the day. It's, it's very impressive. That's pretty amazing. So you've followed both you know, Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway for many years. What stood out to you at this year's meeting? Well, I, you know, I think, you know, t- there are two things that are running through my mind. First of all, it's his it, continuing sense of optimism about the country. It's, you know, he's just it's not only his patriotism, but his 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 belief, a deep seated belief that no matter what the challenges are that the uh, United States of America faces, uh, we endure, we thrive, we survive, we adapt, we move forward. So that, that was, you know, that was front and center. I think the other thing too was a, a re-emphasis that Berkshire is not, not to be interpreted as some, you know, hotshot mutual fund. This is, you know, so, you know, Warren and Charlie take seriously their role as managing the assets of their partners, the shareholders of Berkshire Hathaway and, and the aversion that they have to ever losing money. So very risk averse. Uh, when they do make bets, they're usually probably pretty good bets, uh, but just a deep-seated aversion that they would feel awful personally if they ever lost money for their shareholders. That came out this year pretty clear. Great. So one of the stories that also came out was uh, they took note of you know, the Chevron stake had been increased. So what do you make of Berkshire's decision to increase its Chevron stake? Well, it, it's both Chevron and, and, of course, Occidental Petroleum, and, and, and you kind of think about them intellectually, Lauren, you know, as, as something part of Berkshire Hathaway Energy Group, uh, which has utilities and alternative energy and gas and oil and, and all of it. And so I kind of and mentally I fold it in there. But when you think about Occidental Petroleum, you think about Chevron, you think about highly predictable businesses. Uh, you know, they, they still have, despite, uh, you know, our need to decarbonize in the years ahead, they, they still have an important role to play in providing energy needs. So they're highly predictable businesses. 
Um, they're simple to understand. Um, there's not a whole lot of volatility. They're asset-rich businesses with proven reserves. So the likelihood of them going down significantly in price uh, is very, very low on their radar screen. So it was not surprising. It was not Apple. It was not an Apple investment. Uh, but it was not surprising that he added to Chevron at this particular point in time. So, Robert, let's dial the clock back a bit to 1994. That's the year that your New York Times bestselling book, The Warren Buffett Way, was published. And I believe mm-hmm. since then it's had three editions and been translated into 18 languages, which is kind of remarkable. Yeah. It's titled The Warren Buffett Way. So what is The Warren Buffett Way? Well, you're very kind to, to, to mention it. Uh, you know, the Warren Buffett way is nothing more than a template. I mean, basically what we did in the book was to, you know, we read all the end reports going back to the beginning, all the articles, everything we could get our hands on. And, 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 and people that know Warren and gone to the meetings and read the end reports, he talks about four main categories. He talks about, you know, the businesses, what kind of businesses are he interested in? Is he interested in? He talks about management. What type of management tenants do you think is important? He talks about the financials that are important for him to own a business, and then he discusses valuation. So that's kind of how we we put it up as a template. It's four broad categories, business tenants, management tenants, financial tenants, and valuation tenants, and then went through each of those to tease out what were the main indicators. But then the, the, the just of the book was basically to then go back and look at Washington Post, Capital Cities, Coca-Cola, American Express, Disney, all of those companies and see how they actually lined up with what Warren had said were the most important indicators for him. And, of course, they do. They do very well. So the Warren Buffett way is nothing more than a template that allows you to look at the universe of stocks that are before you and help you reduce those the vast number of stocks down to a workable few uh, that allows you to do your analysis. So it, it, it's a filter Um, But it's a very, very good filter, I guess you would say. Mm -hmm. So you later wrote the Warren Buffett portfolio. And then most recently, Warren Buffett inside the ultimate money mind. So tell us a bit about what the money mind is and how listeners can create that mindset to become better investors. Well, thank you. Yeah, just I mentioned to the Warren Buffett portfolio, I was so, being a first-time writer on Warren Buffett, I was so obsessed with trying to get the stock picking methodology correct. I really didn't talk about the portfolio management process. So we wrote the portfolio book four years later, it became one of Charlie Munger's favorite books. But we talked about concentrated, low turnover portfolios, what today, as you well know, Lauren, uh, is called high active share investing. So that was a book that we should have done portfolio management in the Warren Buffett way, but I didn't include it. Uh, so the portfolio book was the portfolio management. Now, here then, fast forward 20 years, and I'm real now still writing a book about Warren Buffett. You must say, well, Robert, you're a slow learner. <laughs> how, long does it, how long does it take you to figure this guy out? And it was in 2017, uh, you know, he had mentioned at the annual meeting, and it was a question about succession, you know, who, who would eventually take over on the day that he and Charlie were not up on the stage. And he said something that I had not heard before. He used a term. He said, whoever's going to manage uh, Berkshire Hathaway must have a money mind. I hadn't heard that before, and that was the first time. And as he began to talk about it, it really then spoke to me that the missing piece of our work on Warren Buffett wasn't the methodologies. We got those figured out. Those are the mechanics, how to pick stocks, how to manage a portfolio. But we didn't get the thinking part right, which is, you know, what is the mental construct? What, what, let me say the philosophical construct of what it would take to be 
uh, someone who would run Berkshire Hathaway. So we went back to the beginning. His father was a huge influence on him. He was, uh, you know, someone kind of an Emersonian, Ralph Waldo Emerson person who believed in self-reliance and what an impact that it had on Warren. Uh, we talked about rationalism and pragmatism and, sto- you know, all the the attributes, the philosophical attributes that we felt were necessary to have the backbone, the where for all, uh, the ability that's, you know, to, to hold on steadfast when the markets uh, move against you is more of a mental philosophical aspect than it's a methodological one. So we wrote it and I sent it to Warren. He was very gracious about it. And, um, you know, it was just the kind of the bookend is that, when you study successful people, even athletes, you figure if you get the mechanics right, you've got it all figured out. But there is a mental aspect to it as well. So I have to ask you, do you have another Warren Buffett book in you? I mean, you've written a number. <laughs> What's the final chapter? I think we're done. I hope at this point, after writing about Warren for over 25 years, you know, hopefully we've encapsulated it. Uh, you know, there's some great writers out there that still cover Warren, Lawrence, Cunningham, and and other people that that, that think about him. But uh, I'm thinking, knock on wood, unless he surprises me with something else, I think maybe we've got this thing reasonably reasonably figured out. Okay. So if you had to distill your sort of 25 years of of learning and writing about Buffett into a single lesson for investors, I know this would be hard, but what would it be? Oh, it would be easy for me to answer this. One at Carol Loomis, a great, great Fortune magazine writer, and Carol also edits the Berkshire Hathaway and Report. And and she was asked the questions uh, similar to that one, Lauren, and she said, think about stocks as businesses. And that's that's so true because there was one time that Warren said at the meeting, he said, the seven most intelligent words ever written about investing were written by Ben Graham, who said, investing is most intelligent-like when it's business-like. Mm-hmm. And so when someone like Warren Buffett says, these are the seven most important words ever written about investing, you pay attention to it. Yes. And so the essence of Buffett is these little stock prices, these red and green things that are going up and down in price and ticker symbols that you may not even know what the company is. Those are businesses. And if you think about them as businesses, analyze them as businesses, own them as businesses. Uh, and Warren's viewpoint, and I agree, you know, that's the ticket to success. Yes. Well, that's probably a good segue for us to talk more about your day job as CIO and portfolio manager. Yeah. But before we do, I just want to remind the audience that if you have a question please do submit them in the Q&A feature because we'll be leaving some time at the end to uh, address your questions. So your day job, right? You're CIO, you're a senior yep. portfolio manager of the Equity Compass Global Leaders Portfolio. Tell us a bit mm-hmm. about that fund. What's the objective? Well, it's a, it's a portfolio that I actually ran uh, for Bill Miller at Leg Mason for 14 years after I wrote the Warren Buffett way. I started as a broker at Leg Mason and became friends with Bill Miller, who was director of research. And of course, Bill went on to run the the famous Leg Mason Value Trust that had outperformed the market for you know 15 years, and after I wrote the Warren Buffett Way, he he asked if I would join and 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 run the growth equity strategy. So I started running this strategy at Leg Mason, and then moved over to Equity Compass, which is a division of Stiefel. And um, when they started up Equity Compass, they said, you know, that thing you did with Bill, will you do it with us? So what is it? Well, it's basically the Warren Buffett Way. 25 stocks, low turnover. Our turnover ratio is about 13%. I've run it for now eight years. I think of the 25 stocks in the portfolio, 14 of them I've had since inception. So they're businesses that I've owned for eight years. They're great compounders. The core concept is to own great companies that generate cash, earn above the cost of capital, but most importantly, have the ability 
or the opportunity, I should say, to reinvest that cash back into the company at high rates of return to compound over time. So the great companies in the world have that ability to compound over time. And my job is just to stay out of the way. As long as they're, as long as they're doing what they're supposed to be doing, which is increasing the intrinsic value of the business, my job is not to muck it up, but try to trade it all the time. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're buy and hold great companies, and it's worked out swimmingly well. We're very proud of the portfolio. Great. So it's, it's a growth equity strategy. You know, we've seen a big rotation out of growth into value. So what are yeah. your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, it certainly was sobering this year. Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting, the whole growth uh, value uh, rotation is, has perplexed people. Uh, but, you know, we, we discovered over time, and, and it really was the help of Bill Miller, that, that the rotation between growth and value really is a subject relative to the changes in the economy. What we learned was that when the economy is expanding, so you're coming out of a recession, and the economy begins to grow, typically in an above-average rate, it is the value stocks that outperform growth stocks. Uh, their returns on capital go up more. Their earnings per share growth rates go up more, just like we saw at the end of 2020 with the advent of the vaccines. The economy recovered, accelerated through 2021 into 2022. Uh, value stocks do outperform growth stocks. But once you get to the peak of the economic expansion, down through the decelerating phase of the growth of the economy, the economy begins to slow, whether it gets to a recession or not. That's the period where growth stocks uh, typically outperform value stocks. And, and we can go back and look at that throughout the history. This year, though, was a little bit of a stumbling because typically in a decelerating economy, the Fed's not raising interest rates. And this year they are. It's the first time they've had to raise interest rates in a decelerating economy since the late 70s. And, and one of the challenges for growth stocks are resetting their valuations to slightly higher interest rates. And, and that's what happened in the, in the first few months of the year. I would have to say that I think that that, that correction is way overdone. Uh, the the mm-hmm. sell-off in growth stocks has far exceeded even 100 to 200 basis points increase in the discount rate. But that's, that's what happens in markets sometimes. They overreact on the downside and they overreact on the upside. But business investors understand when it's a good time to buy. And even though growth has lagged value this year, it is probably the most uh, attractive part of the market, the most mispriced part of the market is, without a doubt, in my opinion, the growth stocks right now. Great. So you mentioned interest rates. And I guess one of the questions that is on many people's minds is whether the Fed can manage to temper rapid inflation without causing recession. What's your view on that? It's going to be tricky. <laughs> it's going to, it's a, you know, I said at the market outlook at the beginning of the year, you know, they're going to have to thread the needle very carefully. You know, repeating myself, it, it is not typical that the Fed raises rates when the economy slows. Yeah. And that's what we're doing. But we have to in order to tamp down inflation. So in my mind, it's all about inflation. We had the CPI number this uh, morning, a little bit better uh, than last month, but not as, 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 as better as most people would have liked. But still, the market's hanging in there pretty well. The trick will be, you know, getting a, a decline in inflation month over month. That It's not just one month, but two, three, four, five months that can show the direction is definitely changing. Now, I, I would point out that if you look at the betting markets, which would be like the five-year break-even, uh, you know, uh, tips markets in the in the government market, at the end of March, the, you know, they were betting that inflation five years out would be close to four uh, percent. They're betting now that inflation will be less than three percent. So we're not to the magical two percent level, but inflation expectations are starting to moderate. 
but we've got a lot of work to do. And the second thing is the bond market's already repriced. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the Fed's telling you that they're going to raise interest rates, you know, maybe 200 basis points between now and the end of the year. Well, guess what? Interest rates have already gone up <laughs> 200, yeah. 250 basis points. So the bond market is already now where the Fed will be by the end of the year. So a lot of this is already baked into the market. Yes. You mentioned that CPI number, but I know there were a lot of people keeping an eye on it this morning. I think many were hoping for signs of peak inflation. And although that yeah. you know, came down a little bit, it was still you know not, not as much as expected. Do you think we've hit peak yeah. inflation? <laughs> I do. I do. I do think we're at peak inflation unless, you know, some unforeseen, you know, circumstances that the market's not currently discounting show up. But it seems to me we are. Now, the question is just, you know, how quickly does it take us to get from the 8% level to the 5% level to the 3% level? Now, the bond markets are betting that five years out, it will be at 3%. I think people would like it to be at 3% five months from now, not five years from now. And, and that's that's going to be the challenge. Yes. You know, you, we, I think we have to keep in mind, I would also remind all the listeners is December 2019, you know, two months, three months before the advent of the global pandemic, inflation was 2%, if not slightly less. You know, it's not like we have a lot more people or anything like that. What we did was we turned off the economy during the pandemic, took it to a dead stop. Then we turned it back on with $3 trillion worth of stimulus, which is 15% of our, you know, sustainable capable rate of output. And when we turned it back on, everybody wanted something different. Prior to the pandemic, they weren't buying houses over fist and cars. They were doing, you know, trips and restaurants and services mm-hmm. and things like that. But when we turned on the economy in 2021, everybody wanted stuff, not services. So the global supply chain wasn't ready for that. Uh, I think we underestimated how long it would take for the global supply chain to reconfigure on top of that, the complexities that COVID was still impacting many of the emerging market uh, supply chain providers. And so it's been much more difficult for us to reset the global supply chain, but it'll eventually get there. So some people have been making comparisons to the 1970s. Do you think that's yep. a, a fair comparison? Well, you know, it's the, the, when you do comparative systems analysis, the tendency is to look for things that are in common and if you find a couple of them, you, you draw a quick conclusion that says, well, it must be like that. So, you know, the 70s had a spike in oil, a spike in wage inflation, but but it was somewhat different than what's going to, on today. The, the spike in oil, uh, you know, really in my mind was moving from, uh, you know, an economy almost to a dead stop to an economy now that is that is growing, you know, twice its sustainable growth rate. So, you know, we re- we turned it on. And, and, and it moved very quickly, and the system just certainly couldn't catch up. What was different about the 70s is it was an oil embargo. Mm. The Middle East shut off the spigot to zero, and the United States wasn't in a position to produce oil and gas as it is today. We didn't have in, any other avenues. So the oil embargo of the 70s totally different than, than the oil uh, you know, stress that we have today, and we won't go into the Ukraine-Russian situation, but that's caused more stress in the energy markets as well. The other part about wages is that in the 1970s, you know, the labor market was, you know, 30% of the total employment. So you had, a ver- you had an employment market in the 70s that was highly a labor force, that of which that group of people, probably 90% of them had what were called COLO adjustments, cost of living adjustments, that were automatic each and every year. And so it was baked into the system that each year, if inflation was up 5%, 6%, 7%, you got a pay raise the next year of 5, 6, and 7. 
Today, you know, labor as a percent of total employment is much, much lower, you know, maybe 10 to 12 percent, of which even a small fraction of that have COLA adjustments. So I'm not a big believer that the wage spiral is something that is everlasting like it was in the 70s, and and, and we're not facing an oil embargo. We're just facing disruption in supplies. Both of those things, I think, can can be solved over over the next year or two. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a bit about the stock market. I was just reading here, you know, the S&P 500 is down sharply this year. It sunk to its lowest level this year on Monday. And then it had a uh-huh. sort of wild day uh, on Tuesday. It sort of edged up. <laughs> um, I, you know, we, we always try and encourage you know, investors to take a long view. And then that can be really hard yep. when things are so volatile. But trying yep. to take a long view, you know, what, what's your outlook for, for U.S. stocks? Well, you know, we, we see no evidence and, and by evidence, I would look at the 12-month forward earnings estimates of stocks. You know, there's a high correlation uh, between recessions and 12-month forward earnings estimates of the S&P 500. They're, they're, the, S&P, the growth of the S&P 500 earnings estimates 12 months out are still positive. Now, they're not growing as fast as they were 12 months ago. So the growth rate is decelerating as the economy is decelerating. This year's economic growth will be slower than 2021, and economic growth in 23 will be slower in 2022. So the broad economy is slowing. The Fed is pumping the brakes. When the U.S. economy slows, the corporate earnings growth rate slows. So it's decelerating, but it's still positive. So as long as the 12-month forward earnings estimate remains in a positive uh, fashion, it's going to be positive even though growth rate slows, typically the odds are low that you would have a recession. So we keep an eye on that. We, we track that each and every day. We measure it monthly. And um, as long as that's in a positive direction as it is now, uh, we're reasonably optimistic. Having said that, we do recognize the challenges. Mm-hmm. But as I said, the market is already priced it in. I mean, the NASDAQ's in bear market territory. Half the NASDAQ's down you know, 25% to 50%. So all of that's already happened in a lot of ways. S&P is not in a bear market, but both the S&P and the Dow are in correction territory. But we have corrections. We're supposed to have 10 to 15% corrections once a year as normal. And we even haven't had the, uh, that correction uh, in quite some time. So it is tricky. I know there are a lot of uh, ugliness in the market. The tea leaves read bad. But if you stick to the facts of the matter, uh, right now, I would think that there is, you know, more likely than not that stocks could, uh, you know, be in a positive uh, fashion somewhere 12 months from now, as long as earnings are going to be positive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, many of us have a, have a home bias when it comes to investing, but you know, yeah. foreign markets have, you know, had lagged behind the U.S. for for several years. Is now the time to perhaps shift some money abroad? Well, that's a good question, and and I think about that because running a global portfolio, I've got about half of my money um, in U.S. domestic uh, businesses, and the other, you know, forty to fifty percent is in non-U.S. But of those businesses, they are developed market countries, so Western Europe, France, uh, the United Kingdom, Switzerland, uh, Italy, places like that, as well as Canada. And, and that's really stock specific because, the, you know, the stocks that we're looking for in Europe are really uh, uh, consumer products businesses, food businesses, beverage businesses, household products businesses, and, and the fashion goods businesses in Europe are just fantastic. And all of those businesses have outperformed their individual uh, indices, the indices of their companies. So I'm kind of more of a stock picker 
an international market than just to say it's time to buy Europe or it's time to buy Asia mm-hmm. or something like that. I'm still more stock specific centric. That makes sense. So we have loads of questions from the audience, but yep. before we go to those, right. I'm going to ask you one more, I guess I'll call it the sort of the chicken little, the sky is falling question. <laughs> um, what's the risk that you're most worried about over the coming year? Well, I, 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 I'm very confident that the capitalist system, the dem- democratic capitalist system will reset. The supply chains will work. We'll figure out the labor markets. The Fed is pumping the brakes as it should be. All of this will work out. Uh, you know, it, it, this is not the first time we've had to solve these kind of problems. It, it, it will correct itself. You're always worried, as Warren says, you're always worried about, you know, the, 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 the risks of, you know, a war getting out of uh, control. And, and, and obviously we have high risk. Uh, in uh, Eastern Europe, um, as far as going. So we hope that that will be reconciled. Now, we've dealt with many regional wars. Both U.S. been involved, Russia's been involved, other countries have been involved. We've dealt with regional wars for 20, 30 years, and they do end. They are reconciled. And, uh, you know, my, my optimism in me believes that this one will end. It will be reconciled in one shape, form, another, and will avoid uh, the worst of the worst uh, conflict, which has been in place since the 1940s. So that would be the thing that would keep me up at night is, God forbid, anything were to spiral out of control. But I'm optimistic that we've been through 20 such things since the 19, uh, end of World War II, 20-some-odd regional wars from different places involving superpowers, and we've always seemed to be able to get to the other side. I believe we'll do this as well. That's a great optimistic note on which to uh, pivot to our audience questions. So the first one comes from Jamie, and he asks, in the U.S., which asset class will outperform inflation in the near term? Well, the growth stocks will. I mean, they're, they're the most mispriced. They're the most down in price. And um, hence, their, their future rates of returns are going to be higher. Now, I understand why people are really much, uh, you know, it's kind of a bird in hand. When you're risk averse, you know, you want the bird in hand. The bird in hand is current earnings, current dividends, commodities, gold, you know, tangible things is what you want. But it's the two in the bush that are mispriced. So if you said to me 12 months from now, 24 months from now, what is the best asset class which has the highest excess return? It would be the growth stocks. Now, from an economic standpoint, on the inflation basis, you'd also want to own growth stocks because they're less capital intensive. They have higher margins. Their input costs are typically technology-related, which are going down in price year over year. And most importantly, if you look at a dollar's worth of sales per employee, growth stocks typically get much higher dollar of sales per employee than value stocks, which are more capital-intensive, have higher input costs and rising inflation, and have more employees per dollar of sales than growth stocks do. So both from a mispricing aspect as well as what performs better in a growth environment, um, the growth stocks should win hands down over the next 12 to 24 months. Well, speaking of winning, our next question actually comes from Wynn, and he says, Warren Buffett famously advised, stay within your core competency. He notes also (laughs) that Charlie Munger said recently that they have been, quote, dragged into technology. So he says, in a VUCA world, and that's the acronym for volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity, how oh, does like Warren that. Buffett <laughs> update his core competency? Well, I, I think slowly. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, he said back in, you know, 1998 that, you know, someone asked him, would you ever invest in technology? And he said, you know, probably not. And that's unfortunate. 
He said, you know, I, I had long admired Andy Grove at Intel and Bill Gates at Microsoft, and I didn't back it up with money, and I should have. But he always felt that, you know, he wasn't very smart in that space, uh, and, and he doesn't want to compete in games where he doesn't have a competitive advantage in the game. And so technology has always befuddled him. Having said that, you know, in 2016, uh, you know, Berkshire, along with Ted Wexler and Warren, they, they tiptoed into Apple, and then, you know, lo and behold, you know, Warren makes a 40-some-odd billion-dollar investment in Apple and, you know, triples his money. Uh, I would say that, that that he may have been a slow learner, but that was a heck of a return to finally get it right. But but as the as the world evolves, continues to evolve, um, this is harder, I think, for Warren and Charlie. Once again, because they're risk averse, it'll they'll be slower on the uptake, and will only make a bet on a new uh, evolving technologies and new businesses once they've had a chance to study them and see that they have been able to operate consistently and profitably over time. They're not in the IPO market. They're not going to be buying, you know, the first stock that comes out. That's not them. But I think that doesn't prohibit us as investors, nor did it prohibit Bill Miller, who was long a Warren Buffett fan, to start buying technology in the late 1990s. And I think, you know, I would say for any investor, whether you're 20 years old, 60 years old, 100 years old, if you want to be successful 10 and 20 years from now, you do have to evolve your thinking. You do have to continue to learn and study. The market evolves. It is highly different today than it was 20 years ago. And 20 years ago, it was highly different than it was 40 years ago. So the markets change, they evolve, and you have to evolve along with them. Mm -hmm. Art wonders, what are some wealth preservation strategies to consider in today's financial environment? Well, you know, well, I think Warren said cash, <laughs> but I don't, I'm not sure that's wealth preservation because inflation's running, you know, much higher than the rate of return on on, on cash, no doubt about it. I, I think the big pivot is going to be that people are going to have to reassess the role of bonds in their portfolio. You know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, you know, the Jack Bogle, great man, used to say that when you retire, you allocate the amount of your portfolio to bonds based upon your age. If you're 50 years old, you put 50% of your money in bonds. If you were 60 years old, 60% on up, 70, 80%. Well, that was okay when interest rates were five, six, seven, and 8% uh, as they were throughout the 80s and 90s, uh, and even 6% in the early part of the uh, of the new uh, uh, 2000s. Uh, when inflation was running below those numbers, that, that, that was a sensible thing to do. But now with expectations that interest rates in the in the bond market particularly in the in probably U.S. Treasuries, is going to be, you know, probably 3% plus or minus, and you're running with 3%, you know, bonds have to play a, a, a smaller role. Our viewpoint is that you have to look for bond surrogates. And in our viewpoint, and it's evidenced by the performance, the best performing strategy out there, yeah, it's value stocks, but within the value camp, the best performing strategies are high-dividend-paying uh, high stocks. Uh, the high dividend paying stocks are, you know, they are positive for the year and, I, and an S&P that's down 15%. And people are moving money into dividend stocks that not only have yields higher than the bond market, but they have growth of income as these companies raise their dividends over time and always the prospect of underlying capital appreciation. So it's a long-winded answer to say for capital appreciation long term, uh, I think you have to think about, about bonds differently than you have in the past, and you have to look for new um, a supporting role for dividend-paying stocks, high-quality blue-chip dividend-paying stocks, 
to take on part of that burden for you, uh, that's where I would allocate money for capital preservation over time. Mm-hmm. So I guess a similar question, uh, but Raul wants to know your advice regarding how to structure a medium risk slash you know, moderate returns portfolio for someone who's close to retirement. Good question. I mean, you know, that, you know, what's fascinating about that question is, let's just, you know, I, I don't know the age, but let's just, just say someone retires at 65, which would be kind of a normal period. You know, at 65, life expectancy, and it's, it's dipped a little bit because of the pandemic, but life expectancy for someone who retires at 65 could live into their mid-80s. And, and it's not unusual that if you're in good health in your mid-60s, you may go into your 90s. So the question then becomes, how do you structure a portfolio for retirement that has a life expectancy of two decades? Mm-hmm. Well, once again, you know, it seems to me that equity has to play a role. We, we favor a barbell strategy of putting half of that equity money into high quality secular growth companies that are, you know, blue chip, predictable, good, solid businesses, not speculative not anything like that, not newbie businesses that have just shown up, but high-quality growth companies that can grow faster than the average economy, so it can grow faster than inflation. And at the opposite end, which I had said earlier, Lauren, we'd allocate the other part of the barbell to dividend-paying stocks, mm-hmm. You know, investment-grade, quality, dividend-paying stocks. So no matter if the market vacillates between value and growth strategies, you've always got part of your portfolio working for you. You've got the growth for money that you'll need 10 and 20 years from now, and you've got good dividend-paying stocks for money that you need today. So it's a barbell strategy that we would recommend. You know, we touched on briefly earlier sort of Occidental and Chevron, and, and Ian notes that both are solid investments given you know, cash returns and supply constraints. And he wonders, yep. what are Warren Buffett's thoughts on ESG investing? Well, that's a good question. It's interesting because Berkshire Hathaway, I think, is is one of the country's largest provider of wind farms. I mean, if you look at its business in Iowa, uh, tremendous amount of business in wind farms and solar. So I think, you know, if you look at Berkshire Hathaway Energy, it is a diversified energy company that has, uh, you know, environmentally friendly energy businesses uh, alongside, you know, companies like Chevron and Occidental, which still have a role to play. But as we look forward, you know, we're going to hopefully have uh, greater contribution coming from green energy sources as opposed to carbon. But tomorrow, we still need Chevron and we still need Occidental. When you get into the social and governance aspects, it becomes a little bit more complicated. I, th- I think it was CalPERS that <laughs> floated up a, a shareholder proposal that they didn't think Warren should be CEO if he was chairman or if he was chairman, mm-hmm. he shouldn't be CEO. And that was pretty much shot down and laughed out loud at the uh, at the meeting. Uh, you know, I understand that in some aspects, but as it relates to Berkshire Hathaway, um, he may not get the blue ribbon of what the establishment thinks is proper governance, but it's one of the most well-run, uh, integrity, honest, uh, favorable to all shareholder businesses. No stock options here. You know, it is, mm-hmm. it's one of the best businesses you could ever look at. And Warren's done a fantastic job of being chairman and CEO, God, for the last 60 years. That's pretty incredible. So Ashish wonders, what do you think Warren will be buying during this market turmoil? Well, what he's bought in the past, things that he understands, right? Things that have had a consistent operating history so he can see how they operate in slow economies and high economies and how they've behaved. Uh, And he would want something that has a favorable long-term outlook. 
And and so, you know, if you kind of piece that together, those are the business tenets in the Warren Buffett way. He would look at a company that could look at back at 10, 20, 30 years of operating performance. He would look at it as something that certainly is simple that he could understand, but then still look at it. Can I look at it 10 years from now, 20 years from now, as he said at the annual meeting? If I own it today, do I think in 10 years from now, its intrinsic value will go up, which will make the Berkshire Hathaway shareholders' intrinsic value go up? That's what he's looking for. So Sherry has a question that sort of borders on behavioral finance and really sort of market psychology. And you've invested through many different market cycles. And she wonders, how should investors cope with market volatility? Well, you know, we gave out Nobel Prizes for things like prospect theory and loss aversion uh, that, that, you know, we know, scientifically speaking, that things that go down in price causes twice as much comfort as things that go up in price. So when, when there's heightened volatility, particularly to the downside, psychologically, it is more uh, dissatisfying, you know, more upsetting. Now, having said that, I, I'm always impressed with Warren because he really doesn't think about stock prices so much. He's thinking, well, if the price goes down and I like the business, I should like the stock price being down because I can buy more of the business. Now, he does have, you know, cash flows every year that are coming out of Berkshire Hathaway. So he has cash flows that allows him to average down on prices. Some investors are not in that same boat that don't have a lot of cash flow that can average down. But what I would say, and Warren spoke to this at the annual meeting, remember that there is a big, big stock market out there, but it's actually two markets in one. There's a market that most often, you know, behaves very sensibly, very rational, you know, like textbooks, stock prices follow earnings and, you know, intrinsic value goes up over time and, it, and it's somewhat predictable. But at other times, it acts pretty silly. And, you know, he called it a casino, a gambling where things are moving very rapidly. Prices are changing very dramatically up and down. And what you have to remember, as I said at the top of the interview, is investing most is most intelligent like when it's businesslike. So go back to your businesses. Don't look at changing prices. Go back to your businesses. If you think those businesses are going to be around three, five, and ten years from now, which I hope that's what you own, um, all of this, you know, short-term noise that's in the market will dissipate. It does over time. It changes over time, and uh, you just, you, once again, turn off the TV. <laughs> Don't think about the stock market every living moment of your day, and uh, think about you own great companies, great businesses, great products, great services, great management. And that's what you own. You don't own stock prices. You own businesses. And that helps you get through the difficult times. Mm -hmm. Great advice. Uh, Daniel has a comment and a question. He says, thank you, Robert, for the wonderful books and write-up on Warren. Great learnings. And then his question is, besides Warren, uh, are there any other investors that follow his methods that have done well? He notes that Sequoia Fund has struggled. Well, yeah, Sequoia, you know, you're talking about that was the very first fund. Remember, you know, when Warren wrapped up his uh, partnership in 1969, uh, part of his limited partners who wanted to stay in the stock market uh, went to invest with Bill Ruane, who was a classmate of Warren's, and, and, and there was the beginning of Sequoia Fund. And it had a phenomenal track uh, record over the decades, did struggle in, in, the, in uh, you know, part of the last decade, but I think has been doing better. They certainly are like-minded investors. Uh, the guys at Ruane kind of basically are just phenomenally great investors. Uh, you know, Tom Russo, who also cut his teeth at Sequoia Fund, great investor. Uh, Wally White's another, has White's Value Funds, great investor. Chuck Ockrey at Ockrey Funds, great investor. These guys are all Buffett-type people. 
Uh, and I think, you know, for people that are trying to emulate what Warren does but wants to diversify into other like managers, uh, that's a very good list to start with. Great. We have time perhaps for one last question. And LB asks, in the near future, should we expect another Berkshire purchase of a, quote, mini Berkshire, such as Markel, et cetera, seeing as they've bought Allegheny? Yeah, great question. And certainly after Warren bought Allegheny, that was the first question that they're going to go for Markel. And, you know, you'd never say never. I don't know. But, you know, it is about the people. It's about the companies. Uh, does he understand it? Markel is an understanding business. Uh, the great people, Tom Gaynor and his crew that run it. Uh, I would never say never, but he just bit off a pretty big one with Allegheny. He's probably going to work hard to integrate that, uh, fold in the insurance businesses with Joe Brandon now helping out Ajit on that end. Uh, I think that'll keep him busy uh, for the short ride. But your thinking is right to look for other similar businesses. And certainly Markel would be on a short list that you think might be a good fit. Now, I have no idea if he'll ever do it, but the thinking is sensible. Let's put it that way. Well, I always love having a conversation with you, Robert, but sadly, you know, all good things have to come to an end. And <laughs> that's all the time we have for today. So thank you so much for joining us today. And also thank you to the audience for tuning in. We really hope that you'll listen to our next episode tomorrow. Barron's Senior Managing Editor Lauren Rublin and Deputy Editor Alex Yule will discuss the outlook for tech companies and individual stocks. So thank you again for listening. Be well and have a wonderful day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.